So I have a, a question for the, for the kids who are here with us now. How many days left until Christmas? Yell it out. No. Close enough. <laughs> there is a lot of, three, there is a lot of anticipation in this room. And there's anticipation because we have expectations. And sometimes those expectations are met, sometimes not. And Jesus here in this passage experiences something like a wonderful Christmas. Let's see how he handles it and how we handle, can handle, big events and moments. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. A reading from Luke chapter 9. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from a mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crown cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me briefly. God, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful that you sent your word, your son, to us. And he took on flesh. He took on uh, so much of our uh, life and nature um, that he might bear what is broken about us and make us new. And so we pray that that would be our experience, our hope uh, this morning, and that we would go from here renewed, refreshed in this good news of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
If you've paid attention uh, to our other pastor, Stephen, at all during uh, Christmas time these last few years, you've heard him say that Christmas Vacation is his favorite Christmas movie. And today, that movie's plot introduces our subject. Chevy Chase plays Clark Griswold, an all-American dad who wants only the best vacations and holidays for his family. At Christmas time, that means the biggest tree, the best sledding, the brightest lights, the warmest Christmas Eve gathering. And of course, nothing goes as expected. This, is, this Christmas in Chicago, they're, they're hosting both sides of the family, including aunts and uncles and cousins. And it's not just about having a great Christmas. Clark is expecting a large Christmas bonus that will enable him to replace a large advance payment on building an in-ground pool in his backyard. Now, perhaps that doesn't sound all that special to you, but as a child of the 20th century Midwest, I can tell you an in-ground swimming pool there at that time was Shangri-La. If you had a pool in ground, you had arrived. You had instant entertainment and community. In the summer, you had achieved peak family. In-ground pool equaled peak family. So this was a double whammy for Clark, a fantastic Christmas capped by announcing the building of a swimming pool with the promise of fantastic summers to come. Except the bonus doesn't come. Right, the company's gift instead is a subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. <laughs> Christmas Eve falls apart. The CEO of the company is kidnapped by crazy cousin Eddie. I'm not going to spoil the ending for you. But the conflict and humor of the movie is driven by these incredibly high expectations Clark has for his family's experience at Christmas. And as he tries to fulfill these expectations, he can make his family miserable. And in the end, he himself breaks down. And he's not the only one. Article after article talks about depression during the holidays. The belief that everyone else is having a great time and engaging in loving family relationships. So that means I should be as well. Researchers have even detected a health risk around the holidays. They see a rise in heart attacks beginning at Thanksgiving and then peaking at Christmas and then again at New Year's. So much so that doctors and health experts speak of a Merry Christmas coronary and a Happy New Year heart attack. Again, article after article counsels having realistic or lower expectations as a way to cope with the accompanying stress and sadness of the holidays. And of course, this isn't just Christmas. We and our culture have massive expectations about things like going to college or getting married, having children, going on vacation, retiring. So much of our conflict with others, negativity toward ourselves, and unhappiness in life in general stems from unmet expectations around these big moments, events, and life changes. So what do we do with these expectations? How do we not get carried away? How do we not get let down? How do we stay grounded? How do we care for people? How do we protect ourselves? And how do we not just lose God in these expectations, but actually draw near to God in them? Is the trick really simply just lowering our expectations? Today we're looking at a pivotal moment in Jesus' earthly ministry, really the turning point. He and his three closest disciples have this amazing mountaintop experience. We're going to contrast how Jesus handles it versus Peter. And what we see is that Jesus knows 
the missing ingredient to every great moment or experience on earth. He knows what it takes to make them truly wonderful and meaningful. It's the cross. The cross sets the right expectation level, the right expectation timing, and the right expectation direction. So that's how we're going to look at this passage in three parts. And first, the expectation level. The heart of this passage is what we call the transfiguration. Verse 29 describes it. And as he was praying, Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who, who appeared in glory. One way to think about it is Jesus' earthiness was lifted. And this is what he looked like and who he was in heaven or as he will look when he returns in his kingdom. This is Jesus in glory. And Peter's astonished by this. Right? And he jumps to a particular conclusion. Look at verses 32 and 33. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Right, so to us, this sounds so strange, right, to offer uh, pitching tents for these three guys. We can't really appreciate how important Moses and Elijah would have been to someone like Peter. If you dearly loved science, it would be as if Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, and Stephen Hawking all together came knocking on your front door. If you loved American history, perhaps it would be George Washington, Eleanor Roosevelt, Martin Luther King, whatever. You pick the trio, and imagine you saying to them, it's so good that you're here. Let me put up a few tents for you guys to stick around. Strange. What's going on? Well, by this time in history, the Jews associated God's coming kingdom, the end of history, with their Feast of Booths, where Israel remembered how they lived in tents, basically, as they journeyed from, uh, as they journeyed from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And so by offering to put up tents or booths, Peter is saying, I get it, the kingdom has come. Heaven on earth is here. That's why Jesus looks different. That's why Moses and Elijah are here. So let's get the party started. We're going to put up some tents. Heaven has come to earth, and it starts here, now on this mountain. This is what Peter is thinking. Peter is getting something wrong. And even the author Luke wants to apologize for him by adding the editorial comment that Peter didn't know what he was saying. Peter gets a number of things wrong, but perhaps the greatest mistake is that Peter was settling for far too little. Peter's longing for heaven and his imagination of God's kingdom was too small. Think about this from Jesus' perspective. He's doing his normal thing, praying on the mountaintop, right? He oftentimes retreats to mountains to pray. All of a sudden, he is glorified. He becomes who he truly is, and the heroes of the Old Testament are with him, affirming him. And then God the Father shows up in his Shekinah glory cloud, and then completely affirms Jesus by saying, this is my son, my beloved, listen to him. This is the best possible day for Jesus. This is like the best Christmas. It doesn't get any better than this for him in his earthly life. He is fully himself, fully affirmed, fully loved with people who love and respect him. Since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, this is the closest thing to heaven on earth the world has ever seen. 
heaven on earth, on this mountaintop this day. And what are Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about? Well, they're talking about hell on earth. Look at verses 30 and 31 again. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus' exodus in Jerusalem meant, first and foremost, his crucifixion. And Jesus' crucifixion will be hell on earth, where the chosen, beloved, righteous one absorbs all of our death and sin, and his father forsakes him. Jesus will experience the absence of God to a greater degree than anyone in any place has ever experienced in history. Jesus on the cross is hell on earth. And in this brief moment of heaven on earth, that's what they're talking about. Hell on earth. Merry Christmas, Jesus. Our passage begins right after Peter calls Jesus the Christ. Messiah for the first time. And then Jesus begins setting their expectations in verse 22, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The Son of Man must suffer and be killed. For heaven to truly come to earth and be established here for good, Jesus must go to the cross. He must face hell. He must That's what the text says. He must and nothing else will suffice. Nothing else can reverse death. Nothing else can pay for our wrong and sin. Nothing else can decisively defeat evil. To quote Frozen 2, curses don't end, they're broken. Only Jesus' crucifixion can break the curse of sin and death. So like Peter, our problem usually isn't unrealistically high expectations, It's that our expectations aren't high enough. We are too quick to expect and settle for a world that doesn't need the cross. And when we do that, no matter how good of an experience or situation we find ourselves in, what the cross addresses, loneliness, selfishness, enmity, death, chaos, these things inevitably creep in. So the Christian life and call is not about lowering expectations deadening desires and appetites. It's actually about deepening them. It's about recognizing and feeding, feeding our longings for a world that only the cross can create. This is what got C.S. Lewis's attention. He's the author of the Narnia series and other Christian books. He wasn't always a Christian, though. In his memoir, Surprised by Joy, Lewis names three specific childhood instances where he felt an almost out-of-body experience of inconsolable longing. One time he was simply standing next to a flowering currant bush. One was while he was reading a story by Beatrix Potter. The third was when he was reading a poem that mentioned death. In these three instances, he he says he felt an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. He didn't know what it was that he desired, but he felt it deep within And even when his desire faded, it only created a desire to feel it again. And he said about these experiences of longing, in a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. Lewis found the explanation and object of his longing in Jesus. Not only as a teacher, but as the crucified, raised Messiah, who was making all things new, who would glorify us and enable us 
not only to satisfy our longings, but to enjoy even deeper longings in God's kingdom. So something should be lacking for you at Christmas time and every time. It doesn't mean we lower our expectations. It means we recognize our true higher expectations we've been built for. We have longings, needs, and desires that will only be fulfilled when Jesus returns. Right? That's what Advent is. Not just looking back at Jesus coming, but longing for his return. So don't be freaked out if you're surrounded by loved ones at Christmas, but you still feel lonely. Don't be freaked out after you get the baby you've been praying for for years and you find yourself resenting that child. See that as a call to something even deeper. What is missing in our Christmas experiences or our marriages or parenting or whatever else is met by Jesus' cross. The hole in our experiences is filled by the cross. And if we ignore the cross, every experience disappoints somehow. So the need and hope of Jesus' cross should always go with us. Right? Now, the cross, this isn't just an issue of our level of expectations, but it's also an issue of timing, the timing of our expectations. And we go back to Peter's mistakes. Jesus very clearly gave the sequence of what was going to happen in verses 21 and 22. He must suffer and die. Now, Luke, the author, tells us that about eight days after saying this, he went up to the mountain with his disciples where he was transfigured. Peter goes on to assume that heaven is now here and all has been accomplished. So at a minimum, he forgot or misunderstood what Jesus had said, that he first must suffer and die. Heaven cannot come until Jesus dies on the cross. In this passage, Jesus also gives more information on the sequence of events, that one day he will be returning from heaven, bringing heaven with him. That's what he says in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Right, so now we are standing on the other side of the cross from Peter. We look back at it, but we still can make the same timing error forgetting or misunderstanding that heaven will not be here until Jesus returns. So a really helpful question for us to always have in our minds and on the tip of our tongues is, what time is it? What time is it? If you ever read the Bible, this has to be one of the first questions you ask as you try to understand the passage. What time is it here in this passage in the midst of God's grand narrative of redemption? We should ask the same question of our lives and circumstances. What time is it? Has Jesus returned? Has all been made well? Is there no more suffering, sorrow, sickness, pain, or death? Clearly not. And when we try to accomplish this without Jesus' return, we fail. We know younger children, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, they're not often great with time. But there are a few moments of the year when they know exactly what day it is. Right? As, for my girls, it's as their birthday approaches and as Christmas approaches. And of course, many of us even have Advent calendars that we count down the days until Christmas with them. They know exactly what time it is as they're waiting for their biggest day of the year. Why don't we? Why are we still surprised 
by suffering and sin. This is the lesson of Genesis 3, quoted in the front of your bulletin. After driving out Adam and Eve, cursing the ground, telling them that they will return to dust, at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, God placed an angel and a flaming sword to guard it so that no child of Adam could enter. You attempted to enter on pain of death. Now, to illustrate this, uh, Christmas in, in my house growing up was by far the greatest day of the year. We didn't splurge much as a family during the year, but at Christmas time, we went hog wild, grandparents included. The amount of gifts me and my brother would receive was absurd, and we loved all of it, which meant Christmas morning was agony, right? I couldn't sleep. And I remember going and waking up my parents at 6 a.m. They had likely just gone to bed. And, and they wouldn't even open their eyes. They'd tell me, wait a little longer. We're not ready yet. So I'd stare at the clock, literally stare at the clock for an hour, then go back into their bedroom, right? And, and they'd say, you got to wait a little longer. And I'd demand a time. When are we going downstairs? 8 a.m. Okay, so one more hour. So I'd be sitting at the top of the stairs. Finally, my older brother has joined me, right? We're at the top of the stairs. We're, you know, craning our necks, trying to get a peek of what could be left out by, uh, under the Christmas tree. But neither of us dared going downstairs without our parents. We did so on pain of death, <laughs> right? We could only go downstairs with, when my parents were ready to go with us. The only way back to heaven is on pain of death. Someone's death more worthy than yours. That's what Jesus is explaining here in this passage. The Son of Man must suffer and die. We will never get back to heaven on earth on our own. We want to find places of total peace, total fulfillment, total acceptance. They're nowhere to be found. It's not time yet. Jesus hasn't returned. So then what time is it? Well, it's the time of the cross. Look at verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. See, Jesus is saying this to his disciples before he dies on the cross, but these words are true for us as well. What time is it? It's the time between Jesus' first and second coming. It's the time of the cross. It's the time to trust and know our Savior who died to open heaven to us. And because it's the time of the cross, it means we are going, there are going, to be some tears, some suffering, some hardship, some sacrifice. There will be unmet longings and expectations. And like those little boys waiting at the top of the stairs, we are waiting for Jesus to return and say, have at it. Enter my joy. So the cross not only tells us the timing of our expectations, it also provides direction and meaning for our expectations. In the middle of Jesus' greatest moment in ministry, his Christmas, quote-unquote, he's talking about and thinking about the cross. What does he do the next day? 
Look at verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them, met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I beg your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. What does Jesus do? He gets back to the hard work of healing our sickness, bearing our burdens, identifying with the weak and dying. We oftentimes see Jesus retreating to rest and recuperate in the Gospels, right? He enforces those boundaries, but he enforces them so that he can get to the cross. Jesus doesn't stay on the mountaintop. He's not invited to stay on the mountaintop because his work isn't finished. So his rest and sweetest moments are still shaped by and stamped with the cross. And we're called to do the same thing. When Jesus calls us in verse 23 to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him, he adds the adverb daily. Not once a week, not five days a week, every minute of every day of the week, of the year, of life. Because we don't get breaks from it, the cross should inform everything. Our Christmas, our graduating, our getting married, our building a career, everything. Now, having your life shaped by the cross isn't a call to be a depressing killjoy. Every Christmas Eve, when I was young, uh, usually later in the evening, my grandfather, who personified Christmas to me, was one of my best friends and favorite people I'll ever know. He would always like to say, well, this time tomorrow, it'll all be over. <laughs> and my dad would be like, thanks, Grandpa. <laughs> Christians aren't called to be the downers. That's not what denying ourselves and taking up our cross daily means. Remember, Jesus came eating and drinking. He came partying, but it was cross-stamped. He was celebrating the inbreaking of God's kingdom and inviting others, particularly those marginalized, into that celebration. So how should the cross give direction and meaning to our expectations, particularly moments like Christmas? Well, very basically, the cross points us away from ourselves. It points us away from ourselves. Jesus calls it denying yourself or losing your life. Expectations are hard because they easily become about what we're going to feel and what we are going to experience. Even when our focus is on others, particularly children, it's about us enjoying them having a good time or receiving their appreciation for what we've done for them. This is what happened to our Christmases. As a child, they were magical for me. I cannot imagine anyone having better Christmas memories than I have. But into young adulthood, my grandfather died. We stopped building traditions and instead religiously observed the ones we had already made. It was very self-referential, self-focused, and I would feel empty in the middle of it. I was a young Christian. I hadn't learned yet how to take up my cross. When you take up your cross, you are pointed away from yourself. It's literally not about you. You are pointed first toward Jesus and reminded that your longings and loneliness will be answered. 
and you remember that he became acquainted with your loneliness and hurts. You connect with Jesus. And then he frees you to think about others, to care about them for their sake, not for your sake. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are particular times when we need to be even more conscious about taking up our cross because of the baked-in expectations. We can wake up these mornings asking God, how can I serve? How can I bring joy and life to others? Who needs grace? Even if you're just with your immediate family, taking up your cross could simply look like doing more dishes or making peace, playing games you don't like or watching things wouldn't be your first choice. You're not doing these things because you're a martyr or to get points or to guilt trip people, but you're doing this with Jesus, identifying with him, denying yourself for the sake of others. Jesus says, when you do this, when you lose your life for and with me, you actually save it. You receive it back and joy then comes. But you're not in charge of it. It seems pretty clear that while Jesus is not surprised by his transfiguration and mountaintop experience, he's also not driving it. His heavenly father is. Jesus, remember, has just dropped the bomb that he is going to die at the hands of the Gentiles. The disciples can't believe or understand this. So the father affirms his son and commands the disciples to listen to him. God gave his son a moment of joy, a moment of rest and refreshment and encouragement on his way to the cross. Identify with the crucified one now. When we do that, we give up control over our lives. Taking up and holding onto our cross means we're letting go of something else. You can't hold on to the cross and hold on to other things at the same time. We cannot engineer beautiful, warm holiday moments. They come, like this mode of transfiguration of Jesus, suddenly as gifts, as tastes of what is to surely come one day. When my niece was little, uh, her name is Caroline, three or four years old, one Christmas she was obsessed with the Sesame Street special, Elmo Saves Christmas. Uh, I'm sure you've all seen it. Uh, The basic plot is Elmo wishing for Christmas to happen every day of the year. I mean, Christmas is the best day of the year, right? So Why shouldn't it be every day, right? Make it every day. But as you can imagine, things go terribly wrong. One year later, Sesame Street is in ruins, right? The count is all Christmased out after counting all 365 days of Christmas. The carolers have lost their voices. Christmas trees are an endangered species. Christmas has swallowed all the other holidays. Everyone is grouchy and miserable like Oscar, and even Santa has retired to Florida. After seeing all of this havoc, Elmo sets Christmas back to just one day a year, thereby, quote-unquote, saving Christmas, which seems a little strong and over-congratulatory to me. (laughs) Elmo did ruin my brother's Christmas because his his daughter demanded to watch the show over and over again. How can you save your Christmas? By adding the cross to it. The joy, the warmth, the community, it it might come. But if it does, it is a gift from God, giving you a tiny taste of what he is bringing. What does it take to have days bursting with joy the next day better than the one before forever? That takes the cross. 
that takes Jesus returning in glory with his angels. Right now is the time for us to identify with the crucified Jesus, to take up our cross, that we might be pointed away from ourselves and toward others. And as we head in that direction, we receive life and everything from the worst to the best moments. Let's pray for that now. God, we're grateful uh, for your word, and we're grateful that Jesus came and took the cross upon himself, that we might be rescued and saved from our own selfishness, our own sin, our own death. And we pray that we would look to Jesus now and look to his cross as we find ourselves in anticipating uh, whether uh, beautiful things or hard things coming up Christmas and beyond. I pray that we would take up our cross and follow him. And in so doing, we would find value, purpose, meaning, and joy. And that he would meet us there as we look to others and look away from ourselves. And use us to bring joy and life and good news to others. Help us to not make this time simply about ourselves, our feelings, our comfort. Help us to remember you and give us joy and life as that happens. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.